So we are uh, coming to the end of Jude. We've got one more week in Jude, and then we'll be starting a new book. But we have worked our way through Jude down to verse 24 and 25, the last two verses in the very short book of Jude. So I'm going to read those verses for us now. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, for the context here, to remind you guys, we, this letter was written by Jude to a, the, the church and described some real threats to the church, particularly that there's this concept that there are people in the church who are being divisive and, and, um, and are not real believers, and they can't be trusted uh, I think I will remember AJ's analogy forever, uh, his analogy of the wandering stars. Remember that? You know, the idea that you can trust all the stars except the wandering ones and because they're planets. So they actually, as they orbit, as we orbit and as they orbit, they move around the sky in weird ways. And the idea there is we can't trust those wandering stars to navigate by. We can't trust them. You never know where they're going to be or where they're going to go. But you can trust the other stars because they are consistent. They're there. They can be trusted. So Jude is comparing those, uh, these false believers that have infiltrated the church and saying you can't trust them. They're not, you, they're not real. You can't trust them. So Jude's presenting this, this threat to the church, and he tells the church you have to contend for the church. You've got to fight You've got to be able to, to fight for the church. And that brought us to last week. And um, hopefully, uh, the, my analogy of the mental image of the mercy house can be as or memorable as AJ's example of the wandering stars. Um, so, uh, and to remind you of that, that mercy house, uh, that was the foundation was faith and prayer. The walls were keeping ourselves in the love of God and, the, and waiting for mercy of God. The pillars were mercy with compassion, mercy, mercy with courage, and mercy with fear. Uh, and that's how we are to handle people. We've got to have discernment. And so some people we handle with Compassion, we deliver mercy with compassion. Other people we deliver mercy, we have to be courageous because we've got to pull people from the fire. The last is the mercy with fear, trying to convey the fear of the Lord to people. And then the roof of our house was gentleness and hatred of sin. So that, that's the, the advice that Jude gave, that this is the how you deal with uh, this crisis in the church. So that brings us to 
the, these last two verses of Jude. And these last two verses of Jude, you may, um, may actually, they sound similar to the ends of many of the letters written in the New Testament. And that's because it's a doxology. And um, we, we changed our doxology. We had used the same one for a while, and then we used another one for a little while. Um, and I had someone come to me and say, there's more than one doxology? I thought there was just one. I was like, well, no, that's, the doxology is just a, this idea about kind of praising God, right? It's, 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 a doxology is something that is directed to God. Um, so so that, that idea, we end each of our services with uh, a doxology. So let's talk a little bit about this, uh, about that word doxology and, and kind of its... Um, another word that we use often, which is theology. So both these words are similar, right? They've got the ology on the end, which typically means the study of, right? Biology, the study of life, right? This is all Latin, right? So, so this, is, this is the idea, but it's, it's not everything that has ology. So doxology isn't the study of glory, which is what dox, doxa so it's not the study of glory because the word, the ology on the end, that comes from the word that means, that means logos, which often is study, but it can also mean the word or the study or knowledge or the telling of. So what we're really doing is we are telling glory. We are telling glory. That's what a doxology is. Now, theology is the study or the knowledge of God. So, um, so we can think about these concepts in this way. Theology is being, is having and seeking the head knowledge of God. So knowing God, okay? Knowing about God. Doxology is the practice is the practice of praising God for who he is. And it's easy to get these um, out of balance. Right? So an atheistic scholar could study theology. Right? They, every college has a theology program. And you just study God. And sometimes you study other gods. And sometimes you study many gods, right? So this concept of theology, the devil knows a lot about, about God, about his word, right? So just knowing about God is not enough. It's not enough. So then let's move to doxology, right? So the, the other piece of that is the practice of praising God for who he is. If you don't know who God is, then what are you praising? So I think it's easy for people to, um, sometimes there are people who are kind of more intellectual kind of people, more heady kind of people, and they will drift toward theology naturally. But then there are other people who are kind of more emo emotionally driven and kind of connect better emotionally, and they will be kind of driven toward this concept of doxology really naturally. 
But we need to make sure that we have a balance of these things in our lives because we maybe we're, if we don't know God, how can we praise Him? Right? How, how do we praise God for who He is if we don't know who He is? And if we know a lot about God, but we're not praising Him and, and putting Him in the right position for glory, acknowledging His glory, then what good is it to know about Him if we're not going to appropriately respond to that? So um, one without the other just is not enough. So, so as you can see, um, there are these powerful truths about God, um, and, and, and we need to know those powerful truths. And then there's this full-throated praise of who He is. And we see this, this theology followed by doxology all throughout Scripture, and particularly the letters. Um, another one of these is Romans 25 uh, and 26, Romans 16, 25 and 26. And, and I encourage you to look, those up, look that up and read that this week along with some other things. But I, I bring that up because Vodi Bakum in, in a sermon about that piece of Scripture, the doxology in Romans, uh, a doxology in Romans, he, he had this wonderful quote that I wanted to, to share with you. So this is Vodi Bakum. He said, quote, Culturally, we have come to this place where we believe that worship is purely experiential. Worship is about our experience with God. But it is not about knowing God rightly. It's about encountering God passionately. Worship music today is, by and large, not about God at all, but about our experience of God, about the way God makes me feel about me. End quote. So this is a... Um, a frightening in, indictment of the way we can get into worship, right? Man's amazing ability to make everything about man, right? I, I dare say this is the root. It's, it's really pride. It's a, kind of the, when you think about it this way, you're making yourself be the important thing. And this is something that all of us struggle with. And often this is the source of conflict in our lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our families. This, this idea that I am being slighted, I deserve better, I should be the center, right? My needs need to be met, my wants should be satisfied, this isn't fair for me. We're, we, we are so good at, as humans at making ourselves the important part of the story. And we do that in worship. And that's what, this, that's what Vodi is talking about. We're getting to this point where we're putting ourselves and our experience as the most important part of worship. Right? This, this risk is here that as we worship, 
we do so for how it makes us feel and not how we honor God. This is a man-centered worship, not a God-centered worship. This is one of the many reasons we include doxologies in our Sunday worship services. Because we are, we are in need of this constant reminder that this is why we are here. We talk about God all throughout our worship. And we conclude with a doxology where we intentionally praise God for who He is. Not for what He's given us. Not for... Not because we're good. Not because we're better than everyone else. But because of who He is. So Jude has... He has presented some hard truths about the church. And in some way, some people kind of feel that there's this abrupt doxology. Almost as if it's just a, well, I've got to sign off, so I'm going to sign off with this doxology. I'm done saying the important things, so then I'll throw the doxology and I'll walk away. And I think that that is a, a, a terrible, terrible way to look at these last two verses of Jude. So let's take a look at these verses and, uh, and be intentional with the way that we look at them. So first, this, uh, and this is the case with most doxologies, it's really just a complicated sentence. So um, it would be interesting, I even thought about, I, I, I basically in looking at this, you kind of diagram the sentence a little bit. There's some, there's some homeschoolers in here struggling. Oh, no, oh no we're diagramming sentences in church. No, we're, we're going to... So, so I'm going to break this sentence up a little bit and take some of the pieces out so that we can clearly understand what's being said. So it starts off with verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So, the now to Him, okay? To who? To whom, I should say. To whom? Well, it's who is able to keep you from stumbling and who is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So those two clauses are, to, are explaining to us who the him is. It's putting God, the him is God, by the way, it's putting God into the correct position and understanding. So let's look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 5. This is going to tell us more about this, who, can, uh, who is able to keep you from stumbling. So 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Lord. Excuse me, let's start over. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, important part here, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, our faith, we talked about this before when we talked about how God preserves His people. God, God's power, right, by who, uh, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is literally guarding our salvation and He's using faith to do that, our faith. So He's giving us faith and guarding us with that faith. So, so that's who is able to keep us from stumbling. So God is guarding you, Christian. And then for the second part of that, and who is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Look at Colossians 1. Verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in, uh, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So here we see Jesus, God made a way through Jesus, through His death on the cross, through His body of flesh, to make us holy and blameless, and then present us to His Father. This is amazing. And this is another reminder about how wonderful and glorious it is to be a Christian. So nowhere in the last two verses, you know, nowhere in those... In verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I want you to note there is no activity of the you. There's no activity of the you. This is God. So this doxology is all directed toward the glory of God, praising God for His glory. And there is no caveat carved out for if you read your Bible every day. Now, should you read your Bible every day? Yes, you should. But reading your Bible every day will not save you. It will not preserve you. God does that. And we submit to God out of appreciation for what He does for us. So, so, 
I'm going to pick up the the I'm going to pick up on the idea that present so that that kind of gets us through the joy right gets us through the end of 24, which by the way I just want to take a moment and and point this out. So now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God, in, God is doing this with joy. He is presenting us with joy. And that's how wonderful God is. Right? He's not begrudging this. I grew up in a church where the, the picture of God that was drawn for me in my mind, right, the image of God that lived in my mind, was of this angry old man with a beard sitting on a throne with a hammer. He had his mace, right? And he was just waiting for me to sin because he was going to hammer me for that. Because I thought he was a God of of judgment and rage. And no one pointed out to me that God could be that angry God, rage-filled, and would be totally just doing it. But He chose not to be. He chose to set the hammer down and to take the crown off and to take the form of a baby and be born in a manger, breaking every human convention we could think of, because we think of power as being a giant soldier on a horse, right? With a weapon riding into battle. We don't think of power and saving. The power to save me, you know, I'm, I'm a prisoner being held by the enemy and I have a choice, a newborn baby or a powerful warrior on a horse with an army. Well, I'll, take the, I'll take that, right? I'll take the powerful army. Come save me. But God's so much better than us and so much smarter than us. He realized, he knew, no, you need the baby. Because the baby's the only thing that can actually save you from what you need to be saved from. So now, as an adult, Lord willing, with a more accurate understanding of God, I see God, the God that Jesus described, Abba, this Father, Yes, sitting on a throne, but with a hand out to me, handing me clean robes, knowing that I'm sinful and I have soiled my clothes. I am filthy and dirty. But he's there with water and with a robe to clean me and to present me to himself clean and holy and righteous. Not because of anything I do, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. And not even resenting it. 
How could that be possible? How could God not resent the fact He had to send His Son to die for me? I don't know. I don't know. You might have to find somebody wiser than me or smarter than me to figure that out. I can't explain it. 